Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Acts in chapter number 7. If you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you'll always bring some vehicle to where you can read the scriptures along with us. I preach out of the English Standard Version. You may carry another translation. That's fine, but um, we're real big on the Bible. Yes, we put the notes on the screen, but I just like carrying my sword with me, and I can carry it on an iPad. I can carry it in leather-bound paper form, and I can carry it on my phone. However you carry it, it doesn't matter to me, but uh, if you brought one today, keep it open because we're going to be talking a lot from chapter 6 also. The message that I want to bring you today is a message I tried to share two weeks ago, uh, but the Lord had different ideas for that day, and we went in a completely different direction, had a, a glorious time, and I told you it was too important of a message for me to skip it, and so I'm bringing it back this week, and it's called Angel-Faced and Lion-Hearted. It carries, uh, covers a, a really intense, a very sobering subject. We're going to talk about persecution, not only from uh, the life of Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr that we find in Acts chapter 7, but also what's going on in the world today. And so if you're physically able to stand, I'd like to ask you to join me on your feet. Let's do that to honor the reading of the word. We're going to be in Acts 7. I'm going to read verses 54 through 60 this morning, and then we'll be covering the whole chapter, uh, which is, but is far too long to read. And so this is where we're picking up this morning. In Acts chapter 7, verse number 54, Speaking of the people that had gathered in a synagogue that day, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What we've just read is the inspired historical account of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. His blood went into the ground that day. And that would not be the last, but he was the first of countless number of numbers of people who have died at the hands of the enemies of Jesus Christ. He was the first who refused to back down. And so this morning... I am sobered, but I'm going to tell you, even more than being sobered, I'm deeply stirred and motivated to live my life to a much fuller capacity that has been lived up to this point. So a very simple prayer for us as we get into the Word this morning. Father, give us faith, precise faith. Holy Spirit, we will never stand as Stephen did if we are not filled by you as Stephen was. And Lord Jesus, we want to finish our race well. Whether, Lord, we go out on the ease of a bed in our sleep or we go out under the burden of heavy rocks thrown against us because we refused to renounce you. Lord, we need faith in this hour Wake up the American church, O Lord. Help us to know that this is not an overseas issue, but that it's here and that it's coming stronger. Give us, our children, and our grandchildren faith to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
I'm going to get to the passage of Scripture in just a moment, but I want to share some things with you that apply to the culture and the generation in which you are living. Uh, our safety team, headed up by Tran and Thomas, who's done a couple of tours overseas and knows firsthand about uh, some components of our enemy, supplied me with some statistics about um, violent crimes in American churches. We're talking about incidents that took place on church properties among and against Christians, not all of them perpetrated by um, Islamic fundamentalists, of course, but still I want you to sense the building hostility in America towards the gospel and towards those of us that are the people of the gospel. In the last 18 years, there's been approximately 1,500 documented deadly force incidents at churches in America, 1,500. You wouldn't think that, would you? It's over the last 18 years. Nearly a third of these have been homicides that have occurred at churches. Nearly three-quarters of these crimes have involved um, assailants using either a firearm or using a knife of some sort. 5% of these 1,500, approximate 1,500 crimes have involved some kind of explosive device. We're not talking overseas, we're talking here. More than 500 people have been killed in these incidents that have taken place. Now watch this. In the year 2000, only nine people were reported as having been killed in these deadly force incidents in American churches. In the last three years, the average has been 72 people per year. It is growing. It is building. Violence is on the rise against Christians. And their ho the houses of worship in America are no longer off limits. What we used to be able to presume as safe and holy ground can no longer presu be presumed to be so. Now let's go global during the last calendar year. Let's move away from America and let's connect with our brothers and sisters that live in other parts of the world. In the last calendar year, 2016, some 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith. 90,000 of our brothers and sisters were killed for their faith. And this makes Christians by far the most persecuted people group in the entire world, according to a study from the Turin-based Center for Studies on New Religions. There it is. It's official. It's not even in our own publications. It is in secular publications. And they have said Christians are now the single most persecuted people group in all of the world. The same report said this, Islamic ultra-fundamentalism has, quote, taken its place as the most significant persecution engine against Christians. We've often been asked over the last several years, why do you have a safety team at your church? Why is, why is it necessary to have men who are occasionally armed and openly armed? Why is it that that has to take place? Isn't this a holy place? Isn't this sacred ground? Can't we do without all of that? And my answer to the final of those questions, can't we do without all of that? My answer is just simply two words, not anymore. The reality is, is that we are slightly ahead of the curve because the horrifying thought is we never want to be behind that curve. And all over the country now, churches are becoming wiser that what we see online and videos and news agencies that is taking place all over the world. I've already referenced what took place on Palm Sunday in Egypt. And that took place, by the way, one of those bombings in the presence of a metal detector right outside the metal detector at that church in Cairo. This is happening. Now, we are not to live our lives in fear. As a matter of fact, that spirit of fear never comes from the Lord. So if it's coursing through you right now, that's the enemy taking facts that I'm giving you to awaken you. He's seeking to defeat you by them. So we renounce the enemy's opportunity to make us afraid. We fight, but not according to carnal means. But if we are going to fight wisely, we have to be aware of the battle that is raging around us that is now coming against us. And it is not a Middle Eastern thing that we can now just watch from a distance, my friends. It's happening in the Bible Belt. 
whether it is uh, uh, white supremacists going into a black Methodist church and shooting people at a prayer meeting, or whether it is other types of incidents. The fact of the matter is our safety team here at Newbridge, and we try not to publicize this, has taken care of a few situations that had they not taken care of it, we're not quite sure would have happened. Friends, we no longer live in the safety of a culturally Christian nation. And so we're going to do what Jesus said to do. He said, I want you to remain harmless as doves, but I also want you to be wise as serpents. You see, persecution and violence against the people of God is nothing new. We can trace it back to the first organic group of believers in the first century in the book of Acts. And today I want to look at the one who was the prototype, if you will, of what it means to be a martyr for Jesus. I have not, uh, I am not pursuing martyrdom. I'm not saying, Lord, make me a martyr. Maybe you're praying that. I'm not that bold. I'm just saying, Lord, if the time comes where I'm, I'm in a place where I, I am confronted with the potential for martyrdom, Lord, let me retain my confidence in you. Let me not deny you. Let me not slip away. And I am convinced of this, that that will never happen to the average American Christian who walks primarily in his or her flesh and knows nothing about walking in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that person will be sustained in that day unless it be by immediate grace that is given and received. So that is the sobering part of the message. Let's get to the motivating part. Let's begin in verse uh, chapter number 6, in verses 8 through 15. And these verses will be up on your screen. But let me give you a little background about Stephen so we can more fully appreciate what happens here with him. First of all, Stephen was chosen, and he was a man that was chosen because he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of wisdom. That's at the beginning of chapter 6. He was chosen in that passage that is almost always paralleling some uh, form of deacon ministry. We don't know if he was a deacon or not, but we do know that he was chosen as one who would come alongside the apostles allowing them to study and pray and preach while they took care of the widows and did some of the other tasks that were necessary in the growing church. But Stephen also had a ministry that went beyond serving meals and taking care of widows. He did those things faithfully, but God put an extra touch on him for something else. In verse number eight of chapter six, the Bible tells us that his wisdom was paired with power. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, I want you to allow your mind to be engaged here. Here's a man that's not an apostle. Here's a man that wasn't part of the original 12. He wasn't set up as an apostle. He came later on as the church was being birthed. He came in and volunteered and was chosen by the church to be able to represent a need being met in the church. And so he was a man who was full of faith, the Bible says, and full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And as he was serving in that area of faithfulness, of ministering to the widows, the, the Bible says that in some place, God added to him a ministry that is characterized by doing signs and wonders. We're not given a long list of what those signs or those wonders were, but if you write in your Bible, you can write there, supernatural ministry. That Stephen was glad to take care of widows and glad to serve meals and glad to look after the least and the forgotten in his culture. But he was also one that operated in the supernatural dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. He came as Jesus did to do the works that Jesus did. And Jesus said, you'll do the works that I do and greater works than I do you will do. And that was coming to pass in the life of one named Stephen. But look in verse number 9. As he is operating in wisdom and grace and power, you're going to find out that his wisdom aggravated the religious crowd. Look in verse number 9 of chapter 6. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So Stephen was serving with his hands, 
He was also performing signs and wonders, miraculous powers that defied natural explanation. He was operating at a high level of of anointing. And the Bible says in addition to that, he was reasoning, he was speaking to the extent that he was in the synagogue. That's where the early Christians went. They went to their Jewish brethren with the gospel to say Yeshua is the Messiah. And so when they get into the synagogue, you're going to find that just as Jesus often was resisted in the synagogues, so were his followers. So Stephen is in there, and it seems to indicate it was on more than one occasion that he was being opposed. He was stirring up some kind of, of animosity from the religious crowd. It doesn't mean he was belligerent. It doesn't mean he was obnoxious. You see, friends, we don't have to be offensive, but the gospel is always offensive to those who haven't believed it. The gospel does not soothe our flesh. The gospel does not gratify our ego. The gospel calls us into the acknowledgement that we're sinners, that we're lost, that we're hopeless, that we're helpless. And yet Jesus Christ came for those very people. And when he laid his life out on that cross and he bled there, that blood was the propitiation. It was the sacrifice, the payment for all sins of those who would believe in him. And so the blood was shed, the price was paid. And when Christ was buried and subsequently rose again, that means it was complete fully complete. And now all who believe in the the Messiah, he was telling them, Stephen would have told them, Jesus is alive. He is risen. And in the midst of sharing the truth of the gospel, Stephen stirred up some agitation. He aggravated the religious system. It still goes on today, friends. I want you to know that whether it be Islamic fundamentalism coming against what they believe to be the heresy of the people of the cross or whether it be in our own Bible Belt cocoon down here when we dare to violate the cultural norms and the traditions and and what grandpa did and great-grandpa did or our denominational standards or norms. I want you to know the gospel in its pure, pristine, biblically organic form, it aggravates the spirit of religion. And that's what Stephen was encountering, and I'm going to tell you something. They didn't stay merely aggravated. You'll find out that in this very passage, it moved to them being enraged, and they acted upon that rage. Now look with me in verses 10 and 15, 10 through 15. Here's where I'm going to read this. This is several verses, but you're going to see that his wisdom resulted in conflict. The Bible says that his opponents, those in the synagogue, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now watch this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now friends, I want you to follow this part of it. This is setting the backdrop for what we're going to see here in a moment. So Stephen is just preaching the gospel. He's in the synagogue. He's among his Hebrew countrymen. He is sharing that Jesus is Lord over a period of time. But on this day, it comes to the point where when when they could no longer debate with him, they had to denounce him. In other words, they had to lie about him. They're doing to Stephen what they did to Jesus. They find some some people who have no integrity. They say, I want you to say this. I want you to say this. Let's get a group together. Let's undermine his character. Let's uh, assault his reputation. Let's tell lies about him. We can't win the debate, but let's see if we can win his denunciation. By the way, that's the way it still works, whether it's at the place where you spend 40 hours a week working. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's been in some places where you've trafficked as a believer. Maybe it's in other parts of the world. But what, what, this is the way persecution grows. It starts out with a conflict of ideas which are debated. And ultimately, if the debater on the Christian side is operating in the Holy Spirit and is filled with the Word of God, it's not just being filled with the Spirit, it is being filled with the Word of God too, because that's your main weapon. And so you'll win those debates. You will win those debates and you'll do it in love because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So when they can't win the debate, this is the next level, they start to denounce you. 
They start to attack your character. They start to misrepresent you. They start to slant things that came out of your mouth. They repackage them and offer them up to become something utterly different than what you said. They lie about you. This is the way it works. But even that wasn't enough because as they were doing that, they look upon Stephen and they're seeing him there and he's in front of, notice, notice the words. Let me read these phrases. The Bible says that they inst- secretly instigated men. They stirred up the people. They came upon him. They seized him. They brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses. And all of this is coming against him. And then it says, and when they were gazing at him, everybody in the room said, he's angel faced. Now, friends, listen, that that wasn't just saying he was a sweet, nice, you know, gentle-looking guy. There was something about him. It's Ecclesiastes chapter number 8 and verse number 1 that tells us that the wisdom of a man will cause his countenance to shine. The wisdom of a person will cause that person's countenance to to shine according to Ecclesiastes 8 number 1. It says it makes the hardness of his face to be changed. And so when you're full of the Spirit and you're operating in God's calling and you're, you're, you're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the Word, your countenance melts, it's changed, and you start radiating heaven. In Stephen's case, it was visible. They could actually see it. Now, lest we think of this man as some sweet, little, benign, milquetoast, gentle Christian, Um, I really encourage you to read the first half of chapter number seven later on today. I'm going to cover it in three bullet points now. My next point in chapter number seven, verses one through 53. And again, we're not going to go through all of them, but here is Stephen's scriptural witness. As they're accusing Stephen, as they have come against him saying he's blaspheming, he's undermining the, the glory of Moses. He's speaking about Jesus coming back and destroying the temple. And by the way, Stephen's in front of some of the same people that had previously just crucified his Lord and Savior. So it's the ultimate hostile audience. What a temptation, by the way, for him to back down. What a temptation for him to change his mess- message, to morph what he's been saying for it to, to make it a little more palatable. To, to, to get him off the hook, yet while still salving his conscience that, well, at least I said something for Jesus. But Stephen didn't back down at all. There was no inner quaking within him. And if there was any quaking at all, he was stabilized by the presence of the Lord. It's very interesting to me that Jesus made sure to tell his disciples this before he left earth to go back to heaven's throne. He told them in Luke chapter number 21 in verses 14 and 15, he said, they're going to call you into account. They're going to bring you before rulers. You're going to stand in the synagogues, but they're not going to be able to refute what you say. Jesus prophesied over his people that when they're called into the presence of their enemies and those people are walking with Jesus, that what comes out of their mouth will bring down the wisdom of their opposition. And that's what had been happening. And so now Stephen is in a place where he's, he's standing there, surrendered and yielded. It's interesting to me that of all the people in the room, you would think he would be the most uncomfortable. He seems to be the only one at rest. All of the other ones are agitated and tied in knots. They know that they're up against something that they can't control. So look at Stephen's scriptural witness. Let me just summarize this, these 50-something verses in three points. You can go back and read it. He preaches the sermon, and the first part of it was he gave the history of Israel's patriarchs. He identifies with these people that are opposing him in that he also is a descendant of Abraham. He's a Jew. He's Hebrew by race. And he takes them through the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And if you read those verses a little bit later on, you're going to find out that he gives a detailed element. He is full of God's truth. He's got Bible flowing through his veins. He's not relying on the John and Peter and the others to, to stand in the gap for him. He's a man that knows the scriptures. He's a man that is full of the spirit. And so he's able to stand in this moment, not needing a pastor, not needing an apostle, not needing whatever's flying in front of me right there. What in the world? <laughs> Sorry about that. He's not needing somebody to, 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 by the way, he's absolutely alone according to the text. He doesn't have a single person standing with him before the Sanhedrin. So he's absolutely alone, and yet he is strengthened. And he talks to them about Father Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, but he focuses quite a bit on Joseph, and he makes it a point to say this, and Joseph was not received by his brothers. 
Joseph was not received by his brothers. He was exalted by God, but he was rejected by his brothers. But then he moves on to the next point. He gives the history of Israel's lawgiver. He talks about Moses in verses 17 through 38. He talks about Moses coming up against Pharaoh. And he talks about the eventual exodus out of Egypt. But as he talks about Moses versus Pharaoh and the difficulties of them leaving Egypt and moving towards the promised land, he also makes this note. He says, Moses was raised up by God, but the people rejected his leadership. The people wanted a calf. The people wanted Aaron. The people wanted to go back to Egypt. And so you find this subtle um, uh, point that he's making with Joseph. He says, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, but Moses was also rejected by his brothers. So he moves into the third point. He's taking them through their own Bible, showing them that he's not uh, an ignorant man concerning the Scriptures, but he is a man who has full knowledge of the Scriptures as they were meant to be understood. And then he gives the history of Israel's stubbornness. That's in verses 39 through 53. That's where he highlights the golden calf that the people made and said, this will be our God. He highlights the pagan idols that they dabbled in and gave themselves to in their history. And then he speaks of the rejection of the prophets. He's moving it closer to where the people are in the present day where they were living. He says, not only was it against Joseph, not only did they reject Moses whom God raised up and Joseph whom God raised up, but God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And our people killed the prophets and rejected the prophets who came to proclaim the Holy One of Israel. And of course, by that, he's referencing Jesus. And so he is leading them just full of wisdom, full of grace, full of the Spirit. But when you get to around verses number 51, 52, and 53 of chapter number 7, this is where Stephen just goes full bore after it. He says, those prophets spoke of the Holy One that God sent, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and you rejected him. And so he took it from the historical rejection of Joseph by the people to the historical rejection of Moses by the people, and he brought it home, and in essence he said this, you're just like your fathers were. God raised us up a Messiah, and you people killed him. Now, friends, that's why I called this message angel-faced, lion-hearted. He was bold. He was brave in the moment. And I, I just want to say this. I, I, every now and then I have to just drop this. There's a tendency in our day to assume that the godliest representation of Jesus is always the most non-confrontational. That's the idea that has been kind of bandied about. It's not sourced in Scripture. Yes, we're to be kind. We are to be generous. We are to be gracious. We are to be loving. But nowhere in Scripture do you find that God reinterprets those words to mean never, ever confront. Never, ever say the hard things. Never, ever make anybody uncomfortable. Never, ever uh, make a distinction between Christianity and all the other world religions. God never calls us to a perpetual global group hug. It's just not in the Bible. And I want you to know, in moments like these where there needs to be a line drawn, there must have been something within Stephen. The scriptures do not delineate this, but there must have been something in Stephen and you can do this when you're preaching or teaching or witnessing or testifying. You can sense a shift in your audience. And maybe Stephen was shit sensing the shift that their hearts were hardening. Their countenances were getting intense. Maybe he sensed that they were resisting what he was saying. And so he pushed a little harder. And he said, you're just like your, your, your forefathers. You have killed the one whom God raised up. He ruined the, the service that day. I want to say this um, about Stephen because his story is about to come to a, a scriptural end here, at least in the book of Acts. Let me give you this. In the life of Stephen, we see two pillars of New Testament Christianity. We see in the life of Stephen two pillars of New Testament Christianity. The first is the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that back in chapter number 6 and verse number 8 says he was filled with power and grace. 
But we also see in chapter number 7 in this message he gives, the authority of the Scriptures. Let me just remind us all, Newbridge Church came into reality from two groups of people from two different ends of the spectrum, denominationally. A group of people who loved the authority of the Scriptures, verse by verse, word by word sometimes, Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, verb tenses, biblical history, context. We, we love the Bible and we, we believe in sharing it and memorizing it and preaching it and proclaiming it and teaching it and studying it. But I'll have to say that many of us that came from that place groaned at times because of an utter lack, an absence of power, an absence of supernatural ministry, an absence of spiritual intimacy with this one whose book we knew back and forth. And so we said, we have the word, Lord, but we miss you. We want you. Where are you, Holy Spirit? The other end of the spectrum, the other group, were a group of people who were very comfortable in moving in the supernatural who are very comfortable flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who also said, but Lord, we have seen it all. We've seen the song and dance. We've seen the signs and wonders. We've seen the extremes that bothered us, but we've seen also the genuine manifestations of your presence, which thrill us. But Lord, we want to know your word more. We want to go deeper. We want to be grounded. We want to know why we believe what we believe. And from those two longings, God said, I need to marry these two congregations. And boom, Cornerstone and Meadow came together one year ago today as we constituted New Bridge Church. Why? Because the two pillars of New Testament Christianity are the authority of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you read through the book of Acts, you'll see both. You don't have to pick or choose anymore, friends. You don't have to say, well, I go to a church that that exalts the scriptures, but we don't have much of the Holy Spirit there. Or I go to a church where it's no holds barred. You never know what's going to happen. Holy Spirit's moving, but we really don't get into the word. You don't have to pick or choose anymore because what God is doing is a renaissance of bringing back all of his people to the New Testament organic um, intention of his heart, which is that we will have the word and the spirit. So Stephen gave them the word, and this would be the last message he would ever preach on earth. Look with me in verses 54 through 60, the verses that we opened up with. Here is Stephen's sublime worship. This is where I get really motivated. I want you to know, as I've already said, Stephen was bold before his foes. The Bible says, listen to the way it describes those that he was standing completely alone with. When they heard these things, when he said, you're just like your daddy. You've, you've rejected the exalted one when you crucified Jesus. When they heard those things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Now, friends, we don't ever write that, but I'm going to promise you, you've seen it. You know, let me, let me give you, this is not going to be pretty. My wife hates it when I make faces in the pulpit, but Amy, cover your eyes. Here we go. It's this. That's what it means to grind your teeth at somebody. You're so mad, you're, you're like a snorting bull, you know, a bull that digs before it charges you. That's what he, he looked around the room, and this angel-faced, lion-hearted Christian standing by himself. By the way, I'm just hearing the Holy Spirit say right now, some of you will have to stand by yourself. Some of you are going to have to stand by yourself. Some of you are already doing it. And, and, and the spirit of victimhood is not what the Lord is offering you. He's offering you a deeper intimacy because you are alone. You have to lean on him more strongly. It's not a mistake he's making. Some of you, oh man, I'm sensing the strong. Some of you are trying to get out of a place where you're the only Christian. Be really careful. Be really careful. Matter of fact, in the name of Jesus, may you be blessed with fortitude to stand and to stay. So they're grinding their teeth at him. The Bible just gives us that description to let us know it was hostile territory, man. Verse 55 and 56, but in the midst of all of this stuff, he was privileged in his focus. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I'm going to pause, but I'm going to come back to the rest of the verse in a minute. I'm going to come back to verse 56. 
So Stephen, they're about to pounce. I mean, they're going to kill our brother. They're going to kill him soon. And in that context of being utterly alone, nobody with him, it's as if heaven wanted to make sure Stephen understood. Hey, Stephen, Peter's not with you. John's not with you. The others aren't with you. But Stephen, you're not alone. Check this out. And heaven is open. And Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus. Now, friends, the Bible does not say that it was an illusion. It was a figment of his imagination. It seems to be as he was standing there in the natural, feet on the ground, that God opened up the other realm and said, take a look at this. Stephen was the only one that saw it. Stephen was the only one qualified to see it. He's the only one that knew the master in that setting. And so he sees Jesus, and he does what all of us would have done. I mean, he's oblivious. I think at this point, because he sees the glory of God. I mean, he sees something that Moses couldn't handle. Remember, Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I'm going to show you a little bit of it so you'll live. Interestingly, Stephen saw it, and the next thing that happens is he dies. So he sees it, and he says, he tells, he tells everybody, he says, behold, that, that you and I would say, check it out. Look. I see the heavens are open. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Do you see that? Do you see it? Nobody saw it. But when he said that, literally, I'm not being flippant or irreverent, all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose while Stephen was beholding heaven. That's the way it works sometimes. I want you to know some of you that are going through difficulty because of your Christianity, because of your refusal to compromise your convictions, because you have strong biblical uh, declarations concerning what, what have now become political footballs, like sanctity of marriage and sanctity of life, and you take a biblical position to say, I'm just siding with the scriptures on this, I'm siding with my God, and you are, you are kind of shunned at work, you're shunned in your family, you're seen as a, 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 an egghead, a, 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 a foolishly-minded conservative Christian. And you, you've suffered for it. Um, I, I will just have you, say, uh, have you to know that Stephen was a guy who believed what he believed. He said what he was given to say. And God showed him the greatest thing he could ever see on earth. He saw Jesus. He saw God's glory. He saw the throne in heaven. But friends, I'm going to submit to you, I don't think he gets to see any of that outside of the context of being willing to stand alone for Jesus in the midst of the most intense pressure he would ever go through on this side of eternity. There is something to be said about the benefits that proceed from persecution. Do you know how the gospel spread initially? Persecution. It was when the Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted that they scattered. And the Bible says everybody, the apostles, took off. They had to leave their homes, leave their land, leave their families. And as they went, they spread the gospel. The church, the spreading flame of the church was, was stri struck and struck and struck and striked, however. Past tense of strike. Yeah. I was waxing eloquent there for a second, but the, the match that ignited. There we go. How about ignited? It ignited from the, from the spark of persecution. It wasn't to ease. It wasn't that the, the, the culture applauded them and say, we love what these Christians have to say. Uh, have to say. We love them talking about happy Jesus. We, we love them telling us that everything's okay. You see, the Christians didn't embrace the culture they moved into the culture with the gospel, but they never, they never affirmed the cultural resistance to the gospel. They never diluted the gospel to, to make it drinkable to the masses. They said, we're going to tell the truth. We're going to love those that will receive our love. But we know that when we tell the truth and live as followers of Jesus, we're not going to fit in with the culture anymore. Where did we lose that, by the way? Where did we lose the reality that to truly follow Jesus you're not going to be able to be at home in every facet of our culture. And that at times, God's going to put you into cultural situations where your Christianity's on trial. It's literally on trial. He's going to say, okay, 
I hear you sing for me. I hear you pray for me. I hear you preach for me. Let me take you out of the church house where everybody agrees with you. And let me put you in this position at work. And let me see, will you still stand? Could be that way at school for our students. It could be that way in our families. Some of you have like nightmare scenario family reunions scheduled this summer. And you're like, Jesus, please come back before June 15th because I just don't want to go. <laughs> wow, that struck a nerve. <laughs> hey, I get it. Not everybody in our family shares our values. But you know what? And listen, we're not licensed to go be obnoxious with our faith. That doesn't, you know, we don't badger people into the kingdom. But we also don't just sweetly sit by silently and, you know, and will them ourselves into the kingdom. We have to open our mouths. We have to sometimes represent God verbally in situations that are going to cost us something. But the beauty of it is, is when we're willing to do that on a little bit lesser level, we're going, we're going to experience what Stephen experienced on a greater level. I'm going to tell you, you're going to experience things with God through your trials, persecutions, troubles, and resistance that you could not experience with him apart from that. The greatest growth spurts I've ever had in my Christian life is when I have been battling people with a religious spirit. I wish I could say that, yeah, man, the, the Islamic fundamentalists are coming hard after Jeff Lyle. I've never had an issue with anybody from, from the Islamic world, but I'm going to tell you, I have met some, some people that grrr, ground their teeth at me from the religious world. Under, under the banner of Christian dumb, dumb being the emphasis there. That was not holy. I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me. We'll edit that out. I'll still have to give an account for it, but uh, no, in all seriousness, now, now watch with me here. Let's go down and let's get into verses 57 through 59. I'm almost done. He was faithful unto the finish. This is where we have to go. You have to go there before you're at the finish line. You have to go there before you're finished. The Bible says, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See, they started out by debating his beliefs. And then they said, we're not going to win, so let's denounce his beliefs. And he didn't play their game. He just kept praising Jesus, and he had open vision of heaven. And he boldly declared that he saw Jesus alive, the one that these people had just crucified. He's like, he's standing up. He's standing up. He sees me. There's Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. And so when they can't win the debate, and they can't win in the process of denouncing, they seek to destroy and so they take the witness. And the Bible says that they rushed on him like a pack of wild dogs. And they took him and they dragged him outside of the synagogue, then further outside of the city. And so there's a process in which Stephen knows that he's going to die. He knows it. I just have to believe that whatever he got in that, that glimpse of Jesus strengthened him to where he had the resolve the holy resolve to accept and embrace his death at that point. And they take him outside of the city. And stoning is an atrocious uh, executionary act. They, they, they literally, from, from stones that you could probably grab with one hand to stones that the bigger men would lift over their heads with two hands, they crush his head and body until he dies. And as those stones are hitting him, as he's paying the supreme price for refusing to opt out of being identified in, with Jesus and his sufferings. As he says, as they've done it to the master, they're going to do it to me. As he recalls things that he had been taught in the time that he had followed Jesus, and as the rocks are hitting him, he says something beautifully similar to what Jesus said on the cross to the Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knew that in that moment, his body was in the hands of his opponents, but his spirits was in the hand of his Savior. Friends, your body and my body are, are shells. It's the house we live in. As a matter of fact, so temporary are these houses that we live in that the Lord made sure we knew ahead of time that he was going to give us a brand new one that would be fashioned for eternity. 
And when we speak of the body, the house of the temple, it's more than just the physical body. It, it speaks of this temporary life that we're living out. And, and I tell you, this is a great season for all of us as believers to really reacquaint ourselves with the reality that this life, it perishes, it fades, it disappears. We think about what motivates people in our day. In America, it's beauty and wealth and fame, money, a name, a legacy, a portfolio, a reputation, possessions. Think about this. The measuring stick that we lay up against ourselves is often crafted in the woodwork of what we see in the mirror, what we register in the bank account, what we drive into the parking lot, and the place where we put the key in the front door to walk in. Our homes, our cars, our physical appearance, our names, our reputation, our money. Now, all of those have some degree of relevance, but you were never meant to live for that stuff. Christians in America, there is scarcely a distinction among us from those that have no eternal hope. If we're not careful and we don't consider our ways, we run the risk of being as rooted in this world that's going to dissolve as people who actually think that this is our only portion of heaven. Stephen was born from above and he died upwards. And he released his spirit in the sense of he committed it to Jesus, the same one he had just seen standing. And as his opponents went to extremes to silence him, notice the very last verse, verse 60. Stephen was remarkable with his forgiveness. The Bible says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Listen to his dying words. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And the Bible says when he said that, he fell asleep. It's a common euphemism for he, he died. His last words were not, Lord, get them. Lord, they deserve it. He didn't die with a victim mentality. He actually was concerned about the spiritual standing of the ones standing in line ready to throw the next rock at him. He was actually concerned for their souls. I'm going to close with this very recent news story that broke. I found it on the AmericanMilitaryNews.com website. And I quote it, As ISIS militants moved into a village in Mosul, they learned where the Christian families were living. Worship team, come on up. They learned where the Christian families were living and they went door to door, demanding that those Christians leave their homes or pay a tax if they wanted to stay there and live. When one woman answered her door, she agreed to pay the tax and asked for just a few moments for her young daughter to finish showering and she would go in and get the tax money. The Islamic militants refused and set the woman's house on fire with both her and her daughter inside of it. Both the 12-year-old girl and her mother were able to escape the burning building and the woman and her daughter were rushed to a nearby hospital. Unfortunately, the daughter would eventually die due to the fourth-degree burns sustained during their escape. The woman held the girl in her arms as she died, and with her last words, she said to her mother, Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. We are called to a higher level of living. We operate from a completely transcendent foundation. We are of a different spirit than this world. 
may that begin to flow from our lives, not only to each other, and God help us to love each other. We ought to be the easiest ones in our lives to love. But there's coming a day where we're going to be faced, and I, 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 I just proclaim this. This is straight in line with biblical prophecy, but it, friends, I just sense it so strongly. We're not too far away where all of the stuff that we see regularly overseas that we can remain detached from, and we sometimes offer a prayer on behalf of the persecuted church, but it's not real to most of us. I'm going to tell you, there's coming a day in the United States of America, it will be real here. I promise you. And we aren't ready then if we aren't ready now. We have to be walking full of the Holy Spirit. That has less to do with tongues as much more as it has to do with consecration unto Jesus Christ, body, mind, soul, and strength. Full of the Holy Spirit. Prioritizing God's kingdom above our own. And recognizing that this world and this life is a vapor that vanishes away. It appears for a little time and then it's gone. Death is the doorway. Brothers and sisters, it is not too much of a stretch to say that it could be likely that some of us, some of our children, and some of our grandchildren may face what Stephen, the first martyr, faced that day. My prayer is that we'll face it with the same vision of heaven's throne that he saw in the natural, may we see it by faith. Would you stand to your feet this morning? So Father, give wisdom now. I don't know how to give this invitation. Give wisdom, Holy Spirit. Lord, move on the hearts of your individual children. Summarize what I've shared this morning and personalize it to each believer in the room. What do you ask of us today? Lord, I thank you for the grace that has been lavished on America. But Lord, we no longer believe that we will escape what is in the world as it comes against the church. We intentionally identify with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and Africa who are daily dying for you. Our hearts connect with that prophecy in the book of Revelation of the martyrs crying out from under the bloodied altar saying, when will you avenge their lives? Lord, give us faith to renounce this world. Help us to stop waiting on somebody else to make us do it. And Holy Spirit, exercise lordship over our hearts. Help us to release whatever needs to be released and to take on whatever needs to be taken on. I pray, Lord Jesus, with greater wisdom now, knowing why you asked the question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? I pray that you'll find it in me. I pray that. I pray it. I pray it. I pray it. I pray it, Lord, that you'll find that in me. And I pray it for this flock. Let there be faith in this house. In Jesus' name, amen.